all that matters is. Wrong! This town deserves a better class. Heavy Metal Podcast. I'm gonna get a. If you do not listen, then the hell with you. Walk through the gate of consciousness. Stop, 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 Now that's a name I've not heard in a long time. A long time. Since Megadeth, actually. And here we are again. Welcome to Ronnie James Dio Part 4 on And Volume for All, a deeply reverent and lovingly irreverent exploration of the history, philosophy, and future of the greatest music in the world, heavy metal. I am your host of Corellia, Quinn. That was for all my... Master donkeys out there. And here's the thing, Mother Punchers. After the last episode, I started to think that I might actually owe you all an apology. A mea culpa, if you will. No, no. Not the Albanian-American pop singer of the hit singles Don't Start Now and Levitating featuring Da Baby. That's Dua Lipa. Mea culpa is instead a Latin phrase meaning, my bad, dog. They're easy to confuse, so... Give yourself a break on that one, Jennifer. On part three of our wholly deep dive into Mr. Ronnie James Dio, I implied, insinuated, even suggestimipated, that the story of Rainbow Rising's B-side, comprised of two eight-plus-minute tracks titled Stargazer and A Light in the Black, respectively, might have been a kind of personal allegory for Ronnie James Dio that either consciously or subconsciously, Dio adapted the fantastical tale of a wizard who employs a dark magical art to enslave the people of a foreign land in service to his egomaniacal pursuit of stardom, culminating in a grand failure and subsequent fall from power, as well as an anonymous serf, the slave kind, not the Dick Dale kind who emerges from the shadows of his former master and, once freed from both the physical and mental shackles of bondage, takes up the alchemist's proverbial star search, the magical kind, not the Ed McMahon kind, determined to succeed where the wizard failed, as a way of telling his own story. Dio's story, not the serf's story, or the wizard's story. Sorry, that was a long sentence. I not-so-humbly propose that Dio may have cast himself as the nameless narrator who then becomes the song's titular stargazer, while at the same time casting his bandmate, the former lead guitarist and founding member of Deep Purple Richie Blackmore, as the once-great and now-fallen idol. The magical kind, not the American kind. Dear God, the thought arcs are long today. I feel like somewhere Charles Dickens is asking an orchestra to play me off. Get on with it, lad. How many parentheticals, of which you have employed far too many, are we supposed to follow before we lose your meaning, the substance of which has been glibly sacrificed to your insistence on demonstrating your personal intelligence and verbosity entirely? You know you just use two parentheticals to say that, right? Get stuffed, fuckface. All right. Thanks a lot, dick. Ends? That was an episode one callback. But while editing the most recent episode, I started to worry that I may have gotten a bit far out over my editorial skis. 
To be clear, I have not come across a single legitimate source in which Dio even obliquely suggests that the story of Starcatcher was anything other than a work of purely imaginative fiction. Yes, Ronnie James Dio was a brilliant writer who talked openly about the metaphorical nature of his lyrical content, and in 1976, discussing the meaning behind Stargazer, he told the LA Vanguard, that was my way of saying the common man will always rise above the leader who oppresses them. I don't feel that you can ever give social comment without making it a fable in some way. He was also inspired by great writers of allegorical fantasy, like Sir Walter Scott, socially critical sci-fi author Edgar Rice Burroughs, and boring-ass romantic poet John Keats, who did once write, A man's life of any worth is a continual allegory, a life like the scriptures, figurative. Lord Byron cuts a figure, but he is not figurative. Oh, suck it, Byron, you freaking dork. Keats continued, Shakespeare led a life of allegory. His works are the comments on it. I actually had that quote on a poster in my dorm room with a picture of Shakespeare just brutally dunking over Byron. <sighs> That's not true. Again, Ronnie James Dio quite regularly included mystical allegories and social commentaries into his lyrics once he started writing for Rainbow. But that doesn't mean that Stargazer was about the personal or professional career trajectories of his bandmates or himself. And I hadn't read that suggestion anywhere before I published that episode, so I may be entirely on my own when it comes to that theory. Well, me and Eduardo Rivadavia of Ultimate Classic Rock, who wrote about the message of Stargazer, saying, one could probably fill a book analyzing its connection to certain egotistical bandmates, but it was never stated more poetically than on Rainbow's show-stopping Stargazer, which sees Ronnie's protagonist slaving under a guitarist, we mean wizard, driven by ambitions well beyond his mortal station. Okay, so two guys think that, but I didn't know that at the time. Also, Eduardo, stop copying me. In retrospect, my theory was pure conjecture that probably came from my own overactive imagination. And possibly an interview that I read with Dio Blackmore and John Tiven of Circus Magazine in 1975, wherein Dio defers a question to Blackmore, who for seemingly no reason replies, Who's interviewing who, small fry? Which probably sucked to read in print. But when the interviewer asked Blackmore about Stargazer, Rainbow's guitarist went on about the orchestra, the mellotron, and the half-Turkish scale, which, again, I'm just gonna assume is an 18th century confection cut into cubes and dusted with sugar, but offered nothing about the song's story or meaning before he turned to Dio and asked, Yeah, what the hell are those lyrics about, Mr. D? So, so okay, so maybe it's just me, ultimate classic rock, and Richie Blackmore, who suspect Dio's answer to the wizard, uh, guitarist's question about the true subject of Stargazer is, you fuckhead. But Dio doesn't say that. And after he left Rainbow in 1978, Dio and Richie Blackmore have both responded when asked about the other with a mixture of praise. And not praise. Like in 1992, when Dio said, I have never had a problem with Richie. I respected him very much. There you go. And he concluded with, The only problem I had with Richie is he's a very cruel person. Cruel to the fans. Cruel to people in general. Well, people are only one kind of animal. Is he nice to llamas? Probably is. 
And for his part, Richie Blackmore gave an interview shortly after Dio's death in 2010 in which he called him a legend. He talked about Dio's sense of humor and what a good host he was when having you over for dinner, adding, the other side of Ronnie is that he could be like a monster. Which, yes, that sounds bad, but you know who else is a monster? Grover. Lovable, furry old Grover. So check your privilege, I think is how you use that phrase. He also told a number of stories about Gary Driscoll, the former drummer and former human who Blackmore fired from Rainbow and who, after not being able to find work as a musician and a decade of doing menial labor on other people's bathrooms, spiraled into a drug addiction which resulted in his brutal and unsolved murder in 1987. But Blackmore chose to be the bigger person and refused to dwell on the negative. In fact, he even laughed his way through a series of some hilarious memories of Driscoll. Like the time he came to Blackmore in tears, crippled by the belief that, quote, everything he did was wrong, before knocking over a table containing Richie Blackmore's room service, a detail Blackmore pointed out just to show how much it didn't bother him. Celebrities, they're just like us. He also told a story about meeting up with his old friend Gary just a few short years before the drummer would be beaten, stabbed, and shot to death in a case of mistaken identity when Driscoll's jaw had been wired shut after someone mistook him for the wrong person and beat him into unconsciousness. But Richie didn't mind that he couldn't understand Gary through all the painful metal that had been drilled into his face. He laughed about it, saying, brilliant stuff. It was like Monty Python. Yes, it's just like Monty Python. You remember the famous Monty Python sketch where the guy gets his mouth sewn shut with wires and then shot to death for absolutely no reason and nobody cares about it? Nobody cares about the wires, Gary. Or his pointless death. Nobody cares about the wires or your pointless death, Gary. <laughs> oh, Graham Chapman. Legend. And look, sometimes ex-bandmates just talk shit on each other. Blackmore says Dio was a monster. Dio says Blackmore was a monster. Everyone else says Blackmore was a monster. Who's to say if one guy is right or if everyone who's ever worked with him is? And one final point before I have to get to the next album. Magic. Yeah, I said it. Magic. I ain't afeard. Stargazer is a song about wizards. If Dio really wanted to tell the story of the hope and belief he discovered in himself while bearing witness to the decline of Rainbow's founder when Dio found a light in the Blackmore, if you will, why would he write a song about magic? They're musicians, not magicians. Sure, Dio signed all of his autographs with just the word magic, but that's probably his famously quirky sense of humor. It's certainly not because he was a practitioner of white magic who knew anything you'd want to know about the occult because he'd studied it for a long time. Sorry, hold on. Oh, yeah, yeah, someone just emailed me an article about this exact topic. This is Dio in 1985. Listen to this. I have no interest in black magic whatsoever. See? He says, I've always been a practitioner of white magic. I know anything you'd want to know about the occult because I've studied it for a long time. Okay, well, point, counterpoint. And he doesn't say anything about Richie Blackmore. It's not like Rainbow were having seances in the studio and contacted the spirit of Baal or something. 
All right, I'm just going to read out loud from this other Dio interview here that I highly doubt will say the exact opposite of what I just did almost verbatim. Let's go ahead and lean confidently into this one. Where Dio said, We had some seances in the studio, motherfucker, and contacted a spirit who said he was Baal. His opening line was always, I am Baal, I create chaos, and you will never leave here. Well, so what? I dated a girl who had the same opening line. Actually, a number of them did. Who, who sent me this email? Greetings, mortal. I am Baal. I create chaos, and you will never leave here. Well, I work here for a big tech company, so, yeah. Your mediocre comic witticisms will not save you from the eternal feast that I have designed upon your soul in the umbrous pits of never-ending damnation. Mediocre? Oh my god, thank you. You listen to the show? I listened to some of the Megadeth episodes, up to the album where Dave gets all preachy about America. Oh, I didn't really even cover those. Man, missed much. So it says here that you were actually in the studio messing with the tape and moving glasses around during the third Rainbow album? Yes, it was I, Baal, father of chaos. I who led the Israelites astray and gave Abimelech 70 shekels of silver for the murder of his many brothers. Cool. What was it like working with Cozy Powell? Such a pro, dude. And so talented. He didn't even need to sell me his soul. Really? Wait, were there drummers who did? Oh, honey, they all did. Ginger, Ringo, Lars. Lars Ulrich sold you his soul to be a great drummer? No, he sold it to be rich. I offered to sell it back if he gave up the drums entirely, but, well... No dice, huh? He's really good in negotiations. Yeah, I've heard that. And so I doomed him with the most infernal and infinite of curses. Lulu. Well, that seems excessive. I was angry. I lashed out. And I'm trying to learn to forgive myself, but I'm not here from the depths of time to mock Lars Ulrich. Oh boy, did you come to the wrong podcast? So why are you here? For the same reason that you are. The man in black. Oh no. Hey, have you come for the soul of Richie Blackman? Shh, 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 Never say his name. Do you want him to show up? I collect souls, mortal. Why would I come for him? I have come to warn you. You must never let him do to you what he did to Tony Carey. Oh yeah, I'm gonna get into that. That was awful. Look, I torture souls for all eternity in the hollow spaces beneath existence, but that guy crossed a line. No doubt, Gwen Stefani. What? Never mind. All right, well, consider me warned, because I gotta go, but quick, quick question. Are you really ball? Because Dio said that he thought that maybe you were just some lower astral being pretending to be Baal. 
Because you had such bad grammar and swore a lot? Oh, fuck that little twat. I said irregardless one time when I was tired. We don't all have degrees in English lit, Ronnie. Fair enough. Well, thanks for the warning, Ball. Sure. Oh, and by the way, Stargazer was totally about Richie Blackmore. Oh my god, really? Wait, did Dio tell you that? No, I read it in Ultimate Classic Rock. Yeah, alrighty. See you in hell. Alright. See you later, Baal. Wow, you know, he arrived through a swirling portal that opened between this world and the realm of eternal night, but he just left in an Uber. That was weird. So let's move on from the ancient Canaanite deceiver and back to something happier. Something like a rainbow whose sophomore record rising went to 48 on the U.S. Billboard 200 and number 7 in the U.K. And like all truly canonical early proto-metal albums, Rolling Stone made sure to shit all over it, with writer Robert Duncan calling it disjointed, grandiose, and humorless. Uh, yeah. I just don't happen to think those last two are bad. And just for reference, Rolling Stone's highest-rated album of 1976, like you don't already know, was Closeness Duets by Charlie Haddon. Finger meet Pulse. Retrospective reviews, however, are almost universally glowing, like Jeff Ginsburg of AllMusic, who said Rainbow not only avoid their sophomore jinx, they hit a home run, and this album can be legitimately mentioned in the same breath as classic Deep Purple, by which we can only assume he means Taste the Band Come. That's what they called it, right? Regardless, the album had gone gold in the UK and France, but doesn't have any certifications in the US, where we gleefully watched 12 full seasons of The Big Bang Theory, so grain of salt there. But... In April of 1977, Rainbow went into the evilest studio in France, which is not a short list, with a shiny new bassist who also happened to rhyme with himself, Mark Clark. Jimmy Bain had been fired in January for the unforgivable sin of joining Rainbow in the first place, but when it comes to the tenure of Mark Clark, the differences couldn't be more stark. Blackmore hired the bassist on a lark, but months after the band's patriarch took exception to the bark, or possibly the snark, in some of Clark's remarks, which sparked the end of their mutual arc, leaving the Scottish bassist and half-man, half-shark Mark Clark out in the dark. I don't know if he was actually half-shark, but I choose to believe... Soon after, Rainbow grabbed a brand new bassist off the absolute top shelf, the Australian-born songwriter and longtime best frenemy to one Ozzy Osbourne, Bob motherfucking Daisley. Oh my god, do you think I could call Rye and have him ask Bob to bring me some Daisley deets? <laughs> no, that's just crazy. Rye doesn't answer my calls. And finally, Blackmore hired David Stone to replace the aforementioned keyboardist Tony Carey. Now, side note here, Tony Carey is one of the coolest, most unique, and unlikely heroes of the former members of Rainbow Scrimmage Squad who just beat the Carolina Panthers this week, so go fightin' bows. Tony Carey joined Rainbow when he was 22 years old, a classically trained American-born half-Cherokee musician who was responsible for that just gobsmackingly brilliant synth on a light in the black. It's not easy to sort out just what happened to him during his time in Rainbow because, as he said in 2013, responding to the question, 
what was it like to work with Richie Blackmore, Carrie replied, personally, no comment. I've never said anything bad about Richie Blackmore and never will. There are enough people for that. And here's one of them, named Ronnie James Dio in 1992. I learned so much from him. I learned good things and bad things. I learned what not to do. You don't spit at your fans. You don't run away from them in your car. You don't not sign autographs. They wait. They wait there all the time. You don't be mean to your fans. That's the thing I learned because that's what Richie did all the time. He's a really... Adio pauses here, making sure that he chooses his next words thoughtfully and continues. Bad person. Whew. Good save, Ron. And on the subject of Blackmore's treatment of Tony Carey, Dio offered, he's just a cruel, cruel person. The things he did to Tony Carey are unbelievable. He did so many horrible things, almost to the point of killing him. Now, what Dio's referring to here, among other things, is the time that Blackmore set fire to the keyboardist's bed, which isn't really that bad, except for the fact that Tony Carey was sleeping in it at the time. And this is the kind of thing that Richie Blackmore often refers to in his interviews as pranks. As if I didn't have enough reason to dislike Richie Blackmore at this point, one of the things I've learned about myself in the last 40 years or so is that there are few things I despise more in the world than people who love pranks. Pranks, or practical jokes, are really just surprises, but for assholes. And so, I think it's time for us to take a little journey together, and then I promise I will play some songs. So, walk with me. And talk with me. There's a famous quote about comedy that I learned in grad school. It was attributed to Groucho Marx, but I have looked for it everywhere and I can't find it. So that may be apocryphal. And I don't know what it has to do with communism anyway. But it goes like this. It's funny to watch a man dressed like an old woman fall into a shopping cart and roll down a hill toward a brick wall. It's even funnier to watch a real old woman fall into a shopping cart and roll down a hill toward a brick wall until she hits it. You see, my deeply held suspicion is that the people who delight in nothing more than pranks are the kinds of people to whom this idiom does not apply. They also tend to be people with no ability to create something that's actually funny, so they just do obnoxious shit to other people and call it comedy. Of the two scenarios in Groucho's comedy lesson, most people find the first funny and the second something other than funny. But there is that sliver of the population that think the second scenario is actually the funnier one, and this came to mind when I read an interview in Circus Magazine from 1977 in which Blackmore admitted, I'm as moody as everyone says. I find most people boring. I abhor making conversation. I don't laugh very much. I do laugh at silly things, like if someone falls down and breaks their neck. I find that very funny. See, for most of us, what's funny about watching others fall is the involuntary empathy we experience the moment that we realize what is happening or is about to happen, and they do not. We see the banana peel on the sidewalk, and that's when the guy carrying the giant grocery bag in front of his face enters, and we go, oh no, because we immediately become the guy carrying the groceries. We can't help it. We recognize ourselves in the coming folly, and we laugh at Grocery Guy as a way of laughing at ourselves. But there are people in the world who, for a lack of better term, struggle 
with empathy. And their response to watching other people fall is, in the words of Nelson Muntz, ha-ha. And back to the subject at hand. That's Richie Blackmore. And this is what Tony Carey had to say about the possibility of reuniting with Rainbow in 2018. He will never ask me, ever. I left for a reason. We did not get along, and I haven't seen him in 40 years. And this is why Tony Carey is something of a standout among the other 478 former members of Rainbow. Unlike poor Gary fucking Driscoll, whose life after being fired from Rainbow was one decade-long shopping cart ride into a brick wall, Tony Carey had the confidence that many talented young people do to think that Rainbow and Richie Blackmore weren't his only meal ticket. And he was right. He was fired from the band twice, hired three times, and eventually left of his own accord. And it probably takes a lot of courage and just the right amount of stupid for a musician to walk away from a gig like Rainbow. But Carey did. He moved to Germany and started working on music in a friend's studio, released a couple of solo albums, and by 1982 he broke into the Billboard charts in the high hundreds, then the high 70s, and then the top 10. And a year later, he was signed to Geffen Records. Carey then writes one album for Geffen, but executives didn't care for the lyrics for some reason. And it's one thing to tell Richie Blackmore to go fuck himself, but who's going to say that to David Geffen in 1982? I'll tell you who. Tony fucking Carey, who ditches Geffen like he convinced them to hold a burlap sack in the middle of the woods while he flushes out the snipe, and signs instead with MCA. Record company kind, not the Beastie Boy kind. MCA then releases the album that Geffen wouldn't, lyrics intact, which goes to number 60 on the Billboard charts, and the album's first advanced release goes to number 22 on the Hot 100 singles and number 1 on the Top Rock Tracks chart. It is called A Fine Fine Day, and it sounds like this. And he called out to a taxi cab, take me down to Central Park And keep that meter running to the $20 pound And he kept his eyes turned forward and he sat up straight and tall And no one even noticed him So yeah, suck it, Blackmore. So Tony Carey is awesome, and he clearly knows what he's doing, and said so in a joint interview with Ronnie James Dio for Classic Rock in 2009. Not ultimate classic rock, just classic rock. It goes classic rock, penultimate classic rock, and then ultimate classic rock, where they replace the child actor that played classic rock in the first two movies, and he's doing all the same bits and catchphrases that classic rock did in the original, but the whole thing feels like a hollow cash grab, and you just find yourself saying, fuck you, ultimate classic rock. I hope those two burglars finally catch you and just fucking gut you like a fish. 
When asked if he realized how big ACDC would eventually become when the band opened for Rainbow in 1976, Carey said, The key to that level of success is longevity. I actually expected Rainbow to be huge, but our banjo player kept shooting himself in the foot by firing great musicians. Yeah, Tony Carey rules. And when we come back, we will talk about the final album that three of those musicians would ever make with Richie Blackmore. It's just sad because I don't know that there's any future for Tony Carey, Bob Daisley, and Ronnie James Dio in the music industry after this. I guess we'll find out when we come back. In 1977, Tony Carey rejoined Rainbow to record three songs for their third album, and you can hear his work here on the second track and Dio's triumphant return to the subject of the Arthurian legend, Lady of the Lake. Another assault and I started 
Taylor track. Kind of a Jimmy Page wanton song vibe on that riff. If you steal a riff from Led Zeppelin, does it give one back to Muddy Waters? Or at least like a gift card or something? Anyway, before we get into Rainbow's third album, you may have noticed that I have spent at least four episodes now trying to avoid saying its title. Because the unironic use of the phraseology contained therein makes me want to beer bong plutonium and chase it with a lit match. Or at least it did. I shall explain. Long Live Rock and Roll is both the title of Rainbow's third album and its lead single. And if you've listened to previous episodes of And Volume For All, and I assume you have because Ronnie James Dio Part 4 would be a weird place to start, you know that I have a pet peeve about rock bands using the phrase rock and roll in their lyrics or song titles in any way that isn't a deconstruction of the cliché, like Rock and Roll Suicide by Bowie, which I totally love. As always, there are exceptions, but there's something a little too Van Halen about it for me. It's like you've suddenly become a band about being a band. It just feels lazy and unimaginative and way too self-aware, but in the most mundane way possible. It's like naming a song The Song Song, with lyrics like, This is the first verse, an up-tempo word burst, to introduce the sounds I use to sing you a song. But now we're moving into the bridge, where things get different just by a smidge. I'm building up the tension because I'm about to mention the chorus of the song song. If you've heard it before, this is where you sing along to the chorus of the song song. You're not wrong if you think I'm singing a song. And then like, I don't know, three of those. Needless to say, initially, Long Live Rock and Roll was my least favorite of the three album titles, and one of those titles contains the word Richie Blackmore. Oh. But after re-listening to the record a number of times and taking into account what I've learned about Dio as a writer, and how he uses layered meaning specifically in the context of anachronistic language, the title started to take on something of a different meaning for me. So let's dig into it and see if you can figure out where I'm going with this before I actually get there. And there is no better place to start than with the album opener, the title track itself, and at the time of its release in 1978, the only single to break into the UK charts at number 27, Long Live Rock and Roll. Is the best place to start, but that's not where we're going to start because I don't like that song. It's fine. It's just such a single. You know I like to tell you when a song charts or an album sells a ton of copies, but that's really only cool or interesting to me when it's unexpected. Like, it probably shouldn't have done as well as it did, but a large number of people managed to turn off the Big Bang Theory for long enough to recoup some of that compromised gray matter and dig music that isn't just prescribed generic fodder appealing to their diminished mental capacity and complete lack of downtime. A lot of popular music is popular because it's well-marketed, formulaic, and bland enough to offend the least number of people. You know when you hear a single and you go, yeah, of course that's the single. It's catchy and repetitive and kind of designed so that crowds can sing along with it during the concert. That's long live rock and roll. The chorus is just that phrase three times over the same riff. And there's nothing particularly challenging or interesting about it. It's a typical single. It sounds like the rest of the album if it had to go to a job interview. Safe but capable, 
and not going to bring up politics or casually use the word retarded in conversation. But the broadly positive response to the track was both genuinely surprising to Rainbow and deeply divisive, which I'll come back to in a minute. And Long Live Rock and Roll was not the only single. LA Connection was a top 40 single in the UK, and it's been suggested as a shitty send-off to Tony Carey, but that seems pretty inconsistent with what we know about the dynamic between him and Dio. It's the song I played into the show break, and it's like a more personal and detailed version of the traditional road-weary rock song with a heavy dose of dramatic irony, in which the outcast narrator longs for genuine human connection and in hopes of finding it, drives to LA. So good luck with that. But this is where things start to get interesting. The Gates of Babylon is the last track Rainbow completed for the album because something kept fucking with the tape while recording that song and that song alone. They would come into the studio and find the tape running on its own or it would just break and not record sound, which is kind of a prerequisite for professional studio equipment. And this is 77, the golden age of large format analog recording machines. Bands were using these up until the 90s when everything went digital, so they were well built. But unfortunately, not designed to withstand a prolonged assault by the supernatural. Because this is where they started with the seances, wherein Baal revealed himself as the culprit. They even tried to hire a local priest to exorcise the studio, and the dude refused because he said it was haunted. No shit. That's why they tried to hire you. My god, if I were a priest, this would be the day I was waiting for. I mean, come on. You can't be that busy. How hard is it to reschedule a date with a 10-year-old? Other than... Yeah, I gotta edit that out. Other than fighting demons, being a priest is probably boring as fuck. It's just lying to people while in costume. Like the guy wearing a Donald Duck suit at Disneyland, only you have to explain why the Romans nailed Mickey to a cross and how he now lives inside all of our hearts. I don't know, maybe it's a good thing I'm not a priest. Because if you're a priest, Exercising a recording studio for a rock band is the coolest thing anyone will ever ask you to do. It's also your fucking job. It's like if they had a rat problem and went to an exterminator who said, sorry, the only thing I won't do is catch and kill rats. It's kind of a principle of mine. I'm a useless priest. Okay, I'm back now. Regardless, Rainbow managed to finish the track, and in terms of fantastical storytelling, it lives in a world not dissimilar to that of Stargazer. Babylon, obviously, has a number of biblical connotations, depending on which part of the Bible you happen to be reading. In Genesis, it's an origin myth that explains why humans speak in different languages, namely because they tried to build a tower to the sky. Tower to the sky. I know that from somewhere. Well, it's probably an old Simpsons episode. But in the New Testament, Babylon is generally associated with urban decadence and immorality, specifically sexual immorality. It's the original Sin City. And in Revelations, it's the scarlet woman astride the seven-headed beast in the wilderness, upon whose forehead is written, Babylon the Great, mother of whores and the abominations of the earth. It's either a very small font or a very large forehead. But unlike Stargazer, there is no narrator as passive observer of the subject on this track. Here, the subject is the listener. It's you. And the narrator is attempting to seduce you, imploring, look away from the sea 
I can take you anywhere. Spend a vision with me. And move closer to me. I can make you anyone. Ooh, dibs on Gene Wilder. I think you're ready to see the gates of Babylon. All of which sounds great until the narrator starts to lay out the itinerary for the day. You're riding the endless caravan, bonded and sold as a slave. I'm sorry, but does the caravan make semi-frequent stops because I suffer from an inflamed urethra? And of course, things only get worse as the narrator reveals himself as the devil himself. Reminding you with a choral refrain, sleep with the devil and then you must pay. Sleep with the devil, the devil will take you away. So we have a semi-biblical, semi-historical fantasy centered around an ancient city known for using slaves to build towers to the sky. But I don't think Gates of Babylon is a sequel to Stargazer in any way other than thematically. And unlike the B-side of Rising, there is no light in the black this time. Once the Gates of Babylon close behind you, they do not reopen. Like the doors of that honky-tonk bar and if you don't like rock and roll, what was it Baal said? You will never leave here? Much as I think Stargazer was a conscious and deliberate allegory for Dio, I think Gates of Babylon might unwittingly reveal to us his mindset now three years and three albums into his grand bargain with Richie Blackmore. Dio has spent a vision with the man in black, and now the gates are closing behind him. And I think you get a sense of the creeping anxiety that is slowly building beneath the NyQuil and oxycodone dream that Dio is illustrating on the gates of Babylon. Take a listen, and I'll tell you how we can avoid this fate on the other side. I like the carpet ride, though. Tell me, princess, when was the last time you let your heart decide? We don't have time for that. We've got to get out of this fucking band. But how do you do that? Dio has to extract himself from this toxic relationship. Sure, Tony Carey bounced, but he was the keyboardist. When was the last time you said, oh, the band really fell apart once the keyboardist left? 
Ronnie James Dio is the definitive voice in the burgeoning genre of heavy metal, and now he finds himself trapped within the temple of the king that he himself built. Well, what Baal told us was Baalshit. There is one way that you can leave, and that is you have to become the king. But the only way to become the king is to kill the king. If you listen really closely to that song, you can actually hear Rob Halford and Bruce Dickinson just furiously spanking it to the beat. Not in the same room. It's nothing weird. The album concludes with The Shed, a tale of individual self-empowerment, I think. And it's sensitive to light, which is like Starstruck, but with terrible music to match the terrible lyrics this time. And Rainbow Eyes, a somber and sorrowful track about the dissolution of a love that once held so much hope and promise that also just happens to contain the name of the band that will also soon dissolve and also once held such hope and promise. In fact, if, like me, you think way too hard about it, you can track the trajectory of the band Rainbow through the use of the word Rainbow as a lyric. It begins with Catch the Rainbow on the debut, a story, as Ronnie James Dio explained it in 1975 radio special, about a stable boy who makes it with the lady of the court, and they think this is all going to work, but it never does, and they kind of go their own way. But it's a track that I think Richie and I are very proud of. And the next time we encounter a rainbow, it is rising over the Tower of the Fallen Wizard in Stargazer as a symbol of hope and a new vision of ascendance. We then fly like a rainbow from the scene of the treasonous coup on Kill the King, and finally, the aforementioned Rainbow Eyes, which gives us the final lyrics of the final song on the final Rainbow album featuring Ronnie James Dio, wherein he tells us, Summer nights are colder now. They've taken down the fair. Oh, Tara Woman won't even be able to find the entrance anymore. Sorry, let's just keep going. And all the lights have died somehow, or were they ever there? No sighs or mysteries. She lay golden in the sun. No broken harmonies. But I've lost my way. She had rainbow eyes. So, 
in summation, the romance with a rainbow begins beautifully but with signs of trouble. Then cracks begin to appear as the two of you start to go your separate ways, specifically one of you rising and the other falling. And now you have to find within yourself the courage to end it, to walk away with severity and finality, to kill this relationship where it stands. And eventually, at some point in the future, you'll look back into those rainbow eyes with sadness for what was and what might have been. And that's how it goes. And that's how it went. After a lengthy tour, Richie Blackmore had become enamored with the success of Long Live Rock and Roll and decided that he wanted to double down on squishy mainstream butt rock. Dio, conversely, as we mentioned earlier, was disillusioned by the potential shift toward a more radio-friendly sound. As former Rainbow keyboardist David Stone told Greg Prado for his book The Other Side of the Rainbow in 2020, that was kind of sad. Ronnie was always a nice guy. Blackmore was, he liked to control everything. So I could tell he was telling Ronnie what to sing and what to sing about. It limited Ronnie, I think, creatively quite a lot. And as for the band's short-lived bassist, Mark Clark, when asked if he was surprised by Dio's departure and or firing, he said, No, nothing about Richie Blackmore surprises me, mate. I was surprised it lasted so long. Ooh, sounds like Mark Clark thinks Richie Blackmore was a total jerk. You know I had to do one more, but way stupider, right? Right. For his part, Richie Blackmore claims he fired Dio due to the singer's apathy. Fucking what? Of the band's frequent lineup changes, Blackmore told Sounds Magazine in 1979, if they were good enough, they'd still be in the band. No one has ever left Rainbow. It's a fact. Ronnie is a very good singer, but he was becoming lackadaisical. I'm sure if he were here now, he would argue the point. <laughs> yeah, but he's not here, so please, continue lying. But the fact is, Ronnie was not contributing what he should have done. He was bitching about the fact that it was Richie Blackmore's rainbow. That was a lot of facts, Richie. You ever think people who go out of their way to label their own statements as facts as they are saying them are only doing it because they know that what they're saying is absolute yak shit? I do. And so does Ronnie's widow and manager, Wendy Dio, who responded to Blackmore in The Other Side of the Rainbow, saying, I think that's completely false. Ronnie was fired from the band for not writing more commercial songs. I don't think that would ever come up. It just sounds ridiculous. It absolutely does, Wendy. But if you think that sounds ridiculous, wait until you hear Rainbow's next album. I mean, it's not bad. If you like Jesse's girl, which I don't. So, in the year 1422 in France, the body... Th were you not expecting that transition? Jesse's girl to 15th century France? Because it seemed like the next logical step to me. That's okay. I'll make it work. In the year 1422 in France, the body of King Charles V, Charles the Final Frontier, was on its way to the Basilica of St. Denis, who history remembers as something of a menace. Passing the newly crowned sovereign of France, the previous Charles's son, King Charles VI, Charles the Undiscovered Country. The Duke of Uzay, better known to the French subjects as Lil Uzay Vert, gave a formal declaration that sovereignty had been officially passed from one king to another, informing all the people of the land that there was, in point of fact, a new Charles in charge. And the declaration was this. Le roi est mort. Vive le roi! Only in, you know, much better French. In English, 
This declaration translates to, The king is dead. Long live the king. I don't know who chose the title of Rainbow's third record, or how it was chosen. Certainly sounds like there were plenty of dead French guys in the studio when it was being recorded, but if you haven't already pieced together why I've come around on this title, it's because whether or not they were aware of it, Richie Blackmore's long and tumultuous reign seated atop the throne of loud, heavy, and more or less rhythmic noises was over. A brutal rival faction had begun amassing numbers on the western shores of Europe in preparation to conquer the world with a new wave of British heavy metal. Blue weapons and armor. The ancient medieval kingdom of the rainbow had fallen, and the presumptive successor to that now crumbling empire, the man who held in his hands the key to its corroded iron gates, had gone into exile in the little-known caliphate of Fornia, taking his leave of the people with a final declaration of hope that one day soon, Regnum Dio would rise to his place of rightful rule once again with long live rock and roll. But the people did fear that they had seen the last of their tiny titanic potentate, for their hearts were weak and weary. And little did they know that a once great order of knights, united by their devotion to the Sabbath, were likewise adrift in the vast wasteland ruled by the Caliph of Fornia. They were leaderless, having dethroned the lord of their world and banished him to distant tundras, an oars of eternal blizzard, after the failure of their final campaigns in the Holy Land. Although that last campaign went much better than even some of the knights themselves realized. Anyway, what the people did not know what the king in exile did not know, what the knights of the Sabbath did not know, but what the entire world would soon learn was that Providence was quietly weaving their two destinies into one. And then separating them out into two again. But then a decade later, back into one. And then two again, but but then won for a third and final time under a different name. But it was still a great album. Campaign, a campaign like Nights Go On. And we will learn all about the tale of this brave legion riding out to save us from the jackals of the street. With a new captain at the helm, these bloodied angels fast descending will re-emerge from out of shadows to usher in a glorious restoration. The return of the king crowned in splendid majesty and shining ever bright. The king is dead. Long live the king. Uh, that, was, that was about Black Sabbath. <laughs> That's who the knights were. Okay, it's heaven and hell time. Here you go, Ryan. You've earned it. When we come back.